Thank you for listening to Together for Peace with Reem Gunaim. So welcome our guests, everyone out there. Thank you so much for joining us today for our 12th episode of Together for Peace. I am your host, Reem Gunaim. We stand tall to promote and ensure human rights to all people, especially those under oppression. To create real peace, we must uplift vulnerable communities, share their stories, their voices, cultivate attitudes, structures, systems where all people can live in dignity. Peace Builder's role in advancing mutual understanding makes us responsible to engage in difficult conversations, listen to experiences different from our own, acknowledge internal biases, and embrace the discomfort of learning and evolving. We must collaborate and grow together as a unified and compassionate community for peace. To honor the life of George Floyd and the lives of countless others lost, we pledge to raise awareness by elevating the voice of the oppressed to express the ambiguity where injustice to human rights thrives. In solidarity with Black communities in America, we want to create opportunities for positive dialogue about the advancement of racial justice diversity and inclusion in the US and beyond. The current events in the United States bring us together as an international community to elevate, reflect and address racial discrimination and oppression in all corners of the world. The Together for Peace webinar is pleased to introduce you to Tyrone Poole. Tyrone Poole is the ingenious social entrepreneur behind one app, growing up in difficult circumstances, the structures, systems, and attitudes surrounding Tyrone was not designed for his success. Against all odds, Tyrone's hard work, brilliance, and determination led, led him to founding OneApp, a revolutionary solution to homelessness in Portland and in cities around the US. OneApp disrupted the housing system addressed its flaws and became the gold standard for addressing homelessness in the US. Now a TEDx speaker, a 40 under 40 entrepreneur and advocate for ending homelessness, Tyrone's story is a firsthand account of the many obstacles to overcoming homelessness, making him un uniquely qualified to solve it. Homelessness for Tyrone was not only a real estate issue, but an issue of poverty and racial discrimination. Tyrone is a superstar who defied the odds. When it comes to thinking outside the box, he brilliantly claims that those who are not in the box are the ones that can think outside of it. His experience and firsthand perspective is an essential piece to the puzzle of solving homelessness, creating equity, enriching diversity and inclusion. Tyrone is the ultimate MVP to advancing social issues through entrepreneurship. Tyrone is not only successful entrepreneur, but an ambassador to the vulnerable. By the end of this episode, I know you will be inspired and motivated to take action and be part of the solutions to advance racial equity and dignity for all. Now I introduce to you my brilliant, beautiful and genius friend, Tyrone Poole. Tyrone, <laughs> I'm gonna take a minute. Okay. <laughs> Why you're laughing? <laughs> that was 
I will I will tell you that was probably the most uh if I was white, I would have been red during that. <laughs> that was, okay. I I appreciate it. That was the that was a uh an amazing I'm hoping this is recorded so I can I can I can look at that part over and over and over again if I ever feel down about anything. Yes, always, please. <laughs> please use it as much as you want. Okay, Tyron. Well, you earned every word of it. And honestly, I wish I had more time and more English to say more. Uh, but um, for now, let's dig into your story a little bit farther. Mm -hmm. So we recently talked um, earlier and um, you shared with me how happy you were to buy your house uh, where you would, um, it's a big house because you have five daughters. We were just talking about them before. Um, and that was not a straightforward path. You were homeless. And um, so my first question to you, like such a huge contrast, we need to go through how you became from homeless to a house owner. Uh, um, and so what made you homeless? How you became homeless? Yeah, so uh, I, I went through a really tough time in my early 20s. I uh, went to school to be a fireman and I was on my way to, to doing my thing. It was, a, it was a dream that I had acquired a couple years before that. And, and um, I, I did, I'm a hard worker. So when I set myself out to something, I, I try to accomplish it. Uh, I ended up graduating with my fire science degree um, at 22 years old and I was um, fourth out of 72 of my graduating class and I got into the fire academy which is a very difficult thing to accomplish um and the first I, can you tell us why it was a difficult thing to accomplish like how you uh, even, yeah a, a ton of so being a fireman is a very uh it's not very many positions but it's the highly sought out field uh, for work. So you get an academy that may open 40 to 80 slots for, for training. You don't even get a job yet. You just get to join the academy and see if you get a job. Uh, and there are six to 800 applicants trying to fill 40 to 80 slots. So it's a huge competition. The list opens up once every you know few years and it's just difficult. And uh, um, a lot of people compete um, to be there and, and uh, I was able to get in so it was okay, sorry for interrupting oh, you but oh. we will go to visit that later okay just wanted to highlight it <laughs> uh, I get uh, I get into the academy and a few weeks in I get injured really bad in a training um, apparatus uh, a training event and I end up being uh, hospitalized for a really long time I actually tore my leg apart and uh, was in the hospital for uh, nine months on and off uh, with a few times that I was able to to be released uh, temporarily but um, my leg was elevated above my heart for more than half of that uh, for 16 out of 24 hours a day uh, from bleeding so I had one leg up in a sling and uh, I almost died during the accident from internal bleeding uh, just from the fall so uh, but uh, when I finally got released from the hospital uh, and got my, my papers sick there nine months later, and I ended up uh, having nowhere to go about about 90 days after being released from the hospital. I first got out of the hospital, and I had a ton of friends and family that were there to support me. Uh, they were waiting for me. Um, I had a party when I first got out. I had every cousin and brother and, and you know trying to tell me if I needed anything. They were there for me. 
because during the time I was in the hospital, I couldn't pay bills, so my car was possessed, and my my um, I was evicted from my apartment. I had a bunch of debt from because I just stopped paying all bills because I had no more income. Um, so everything was sent to collections, and uh, but I was so excited to be free, and I was going to get back on my feet, and and I, none of that mattered at that moment. Uh, you fast forward to make a very uh, long story short. You fast forward ninety days, and uh, I had used my welcome at every place. Uh, I actually had some people who were friends at one point um, say to me, you know, why are you always begging? And I remember that to this day, uh, the friend who actually said it to me. Um, I ended up, uh, and it was for everything. Like I, I couldn't, I was trying to do laundry and I'd have to ask people if I could do laundry at their house. Uh, it was just, it was always, it was everything. And, and remember I was on crutches for 12 months after getting out of the hospital. So I was physically unable to work. So I couldn't earn money for myself. And uh, so I was, I was dependent on asking people for help. Uh, and that, that all those, those bridges I, I wore out, I stayed on people's couches to the point where they were worried about them being worn out. <clears throat> and eventually I had nowhere to go. So I moved into the YWCA homeless shelter. Uh, and that's kind of how I got to that stage of my life of being homeless. Tyrone, I want to kind of pause a little bit here and um, kind of describe that. I think I sense from what you're describing that you really didn't have a safety net. So the moment you got injured and uh, you had to be committed to your bills, <laughs> you're saying bye to your, to Logan? Yeah, she's, she's pushing a... Uh, <laughs> I see her in the corner. <laughs> Making all this noise. Hey, Logan. I don't know if she did. Okay, she's cute. Hey, Logan. Stop that. Leave it alone, please. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So we were talking about the fact that you didn't have, um, you know, safety net. So basically, the moment you were um, stressed by those pills, like you, you didn't have enough to, uh, money to sustain you after, or to sustain even. Um, or you have savings to go back and have your own apartment. So can you tell us like why like you didn't have that kind of opportunity? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay. No worries. The, uh, yeah, this is the new working world we're in today. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. Quarantine. <laughs> Shout out to all the fathers out there. I know, I have, yeah. <laughs> Uh, in reality, it's the safety net comes from a community, right? It comes from mom, brothers, cousins, uh, comes from uh, friends and families, teachers, people who you can depend on and lean on when you are without, right? Uh, the black community uh, is a very, very thin safety net. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people understand how thin that safety net really is. I mean, you have, in, in white communities, you have different levels of, of income, right? Like you have high earners, low earners, you have people with more and less to give. And in black communities, it is, I, at least in my experience, like I can't speak for every community, but the community I grew up in, every person was in the same boat. You know what I mean? Like every person was, was at the, was, was, had enough. And when you only have enough, you're not in a position to give to other people. Mm -hmm. And um and when and 
when I'm talking about like thin, I, I'm not talking about like I need a hundred bucks. Or I need, you know, a substantial amount of money. Even even that's not substantial, but it's it can be to some people. But I mean, I was talking about like two dollars for the bus. You know, like I was uh, when I took showers at you know uh, aunt's house, and she noticed that her water bill was up by twenty dollars. Like that actually impacts her life, yeah. and so to the point where I can't afford for you to take showers at my house like I can't you can't keep doing laundry here you can't eat my food like the the safety net is so thin that you you burn it out very quickly and not because they not because they it's not about not loving you or not wanting to be there for you it is just the net is thin now if you imagine every person that you could call is in that exact same boat and that is the you know, the community that I grew up in. So, um, so when somebody falls, they, they go all the way to the ground. Like there's no, um, there's not a net there. So, and the net is just really thin. So. I think your story of how you joined, um, you know, for example, before you became a firefighter, you paid for schooling. And can you tell us how you pay, why, like you decided to go to finish your college. So you were working really hard to get education tell us about that that just gives us another lens to right yeah you didn't have any savings yeah yeah graduated uh like i said but i also um i did i don't i graduated with no debt i didn't know the university money and it's because i i was an iron worker and i worked uh and i lived way below my means i had two roommates and my rent was 550 bucks total and I had two roommates <laughs> and I, uh, and, uh, I made like a thousand dollars a week, you know, being a steel worker. So I was able to pay, um, all of my, my, you know, for my schooling as I went to school. So I wasn't much left over after that because school was expensive, but so that's kind of how I got away with not having debt when I graduated. So. I think he might have frozen. I, my connection was bad for a moment. Oh, there you go. You're back. I'm here back. Yeah, I'm sorry. The internet world. Okay. <laughs> yep. So you Thanks. were saying. Oh, uh, I, I finished it. I think you might have missed it, but. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so you're talking. Okay. So I, I like. When I covered it from my salary as an iron worker. Yeah. And, and so to me, I just want to like. I'm literally asking you these questions to dig into also what makes Tyrone the superstar. You've been a superstar in my eyes way before you started the one app. I love the story when you shared where, that you shared with me about how when you were doing construction with your friends, uh, your attitude at the time. Uh, so tell us about that story, like your mindset. It's always been the right mindset. Yeah. Um... Uh, when it, it, that's how I got into because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college. Like I just knew I was supposed to go to college. So when I went there, um, there was actually a, an area at Portland State University for people who had no idea what they wanted to do. And there was a course that was kind of like pre-set up to say, don't know what you want to do? Take this course, which was basically all prereqs. So you could be there for a year, get a bunch of prereqs out of the way while you figured it out. Um, so I took that um, and uh, I at my at 
uh, my construction company, there was these three guys who were uh, going to school to be a fireman. And they were a couple years older than me, but uh, they would do, uh, they made, they would work out and do stuff at the job that would uh, uh, try to help them become better firemen. And so we would end up, uh, so I would join in with them because I was so small back then and I was just kind of frail and I never got into like <laughs> physical activities, but I did want to, I wanted to, to be like those guys. So I kind of tagged in and, uh, and then I, I talked to them and was like, why do you guys do this every day? Cause they would like pick up the steel that we supposed to use a crane for and they would put it on their shoulders and they would try to lunge, walk across while they were like putting steel away and, and, and they would just do things that was trying to be like a workout exercise and they would push each other to be stronger. Um, and so I joined in with them and uh, found out that they were doing it to be a fire science and, and we would all get in trouble. Uh, and especially me, because my mom was one of the lead uh, uh, in designs there. And so she would always get told that I'm out there being ridiculous. So <laughs> the foreman would always yell at me and he'd be like, damn it, Paul, use the cranes for that. Stop trying to pick it up with your hands. I'm trying to work out. <laughs> so we always get in trouble. But uh, it, we, I mean, the, we were helpers. Like that was our job title, a helper. You know, that really means grunt. You sweep, you paint, you move garbage and, and from one area to another. Uh, you clear out rooms so new people, new mechanics can come in and start new projects. So we had to make it fun. And we and did. And you were helper three. That's one yeah. of your that was right. one of your titles yeah yes. so like there's one two and three and i was a helper three that's like the lowest there's nothing lower than the <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what i was uh but i worked my way up uh over the over the three and a half years i worked there while i went to school so and, and that's how you through this uh, group you were introduced to um um the concept of a fireman like that you could actually mm -hmm. be a fireman uh, before mm -hmm. your injury and you said a sentence that struck me when you were sharing that story with me earlier you said they were the only people I knew that are doing it and mm -hmm. we talked about this and I asked you and I want to ask you again now have you like growing up have you seen black firemen in your community never I mean I'm I'm 37 I was the I was the only graduate from my class of that was african-american for the fire academy for the my fire science degree um and then when i was when i got accepted in i was only one other i wouldn't say he was black but he was my color skin but he was a different nationality he was the only other person of color uh, there was more white women there than there were men of color uh they, we, after, to this day have never seen a black fireman I would have been the only one I ever knew <laughs> if I had made it. Yeah. And so you had even no, it was, it didn't cross your, you know, senses like you ever that you, you could actually be a fireman because you didn't see a role model or someone who, where you're, you know, that you thought it was not for me. And um, yeah. Um, and so to me, that just shows how, we have systems and structures in place that does not uh, give access to black communities. It's just the poverty in place to, to, to aspire to be like, to think about those possibilities in place for them. 
Uh, so if someone did not take your hand and told you, what do you want to do for your future? You probably would have not known that you could be a fireman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, just like that. Like he came directly to me, the, one of the fathers of the boys that was in my construction, his dad was one of the fire chiefs. And he actually said, Hey, they talk about you at home. What is it that you plan on doing? You should join. And I was like, really? And he was like, yes. And he uh, told me that there was a great program at, at PCC. And I was like, I went to Jeff I'm right across the street from that school. And, and, uh, and then I like went down there like the next day, like, like instant, like I was excited to wake up in the morning and go and enroll uh, at PCC so I could join the fire guy because he, because he told me it was possible. Like he just said, you absolutely could. And I, that was enough. Like that was enough. So. And I want to say to everyone who's watching us, especially uh, people of color or black aspiring entrepreneurs, Tyrone is uh, an entrepreneur and you can also be whatever you want to be in life. And you, Tyrone, you know, is um, an example of uh, the possibility out there. And that human potential is unlimited. It's only what we have in our mind. We sometimes have to work harder and seek opportunities not accessible to us. But, um, but that's, that's not, should be not the case. And that's why we're talking and addressing this. We need to make these opportunities more accessible. Uh, but meanwhile, Tyrone is a role example and know that you can also be like Tyrone. Um, so Tyrone, after you said that also the firefighting, like is, it was difficult. We talked about earlier in the conversation, it was just so hard to enroll. So even for you to get in that class and be nominated to access that class was not a straight path, it's not, was not straightforward. No, no, it's not. And about what you said earlier, um, I, if, if you are watching this and, and you, uh, you, you do need to understand that sometimes the people who love you the most that you know that you trust, um, their, their opportunity that they've had in their life and what they see is realistic is, is, is usually very limited. And if they're close enough to you, it can actually limit your perception of what reality is and what opportunity looks like. And the closer they are to you, uh, and the more you, uh, you value their ideas and opinions, like a mother or a father or an uncle, uh, you can, it can become your reality just because of them communicating it to you. And that is dangerous because in our community, it's uh, a lot of our um, older people who've experienced just being blocked their whole life from any of the dreams and opportunity they've had when they hear about what you plan on doing, it can automatically, they can be trying to protect you, but what it's doing is limiting your, uh, and for my mom, uh, I love her to death. She didn't have very much opportunity. Um, and I will tell you that like, for example, when I, I won the Startup PDX Challenge, which was the, the competition that allowed me to start my business. And I was beyond, uh, I had been talking to her about this idea and about this competition. And then I won the Startup Pitics Challenge. And for a year, I was in this incubator. Now, I talked to my mom all the time about, I'm building this platform. I'm in this incubator. I'm going to be launching it soon. And it went in one ear and out the other. And I will tell you that when I met, when, so I, when, the, when it launched, 
and the mayor came and spoke at the launch party. And, uh, and he talked about me and pointed to me and talked about how this was going to change the city and blah, blah. And my mom was like, this is the mayor of Portland. And he came up to her and he said, your son is amazing and he's going to change the world. And she looked at me and was like, what is it again that you do? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to tell you. Now, it's the millionth time, but it just shows that, like, even her glass ceilings, like, no matter how much I communicated, I, it was toxic for me to pull from that. So I had to, like, separate. And sometimes, especially if you come from Black community, you will find yourself walking alone. 100% alone if you want to try to reach something because it's just too big for the people around you to dream that big. And that's the, one of the hardest things is learning to be okay with that. Learning to be okay with the fact that you are walking alone till you get there. But they yeah. all show up. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I thought my internet was again. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, I got people bothering me. But they all show up. And they'll come back once you get there. So don't worry. It'll be okay. temporary. um so tyrone to your point about your mom perception um i think your mom is probably the most loving mom because she risked a lot for you to be where you are so the fact that she she was not there to support you is not a fault of her own so tell us about how even your mom suffered um to even get you to be alive today yeah so you got to understand what, when I talk about my community, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. All right. And it's a very harsh place to grow up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not to feel sorry for me, but my dad was like a lot of the older men in Cleveland. He was in gangs. He ran gangs. He, uh, he, uh, your reputation was built on how dangerous you were and that's how you got respect. And so the more, you acted a fool, the more, you know, you could accomplish. Uh, he ended up uh, dying. Uh, and uh, I think I told you like how my, my grandpa died too. He was, he was an OG, he was, he was shot in the head too. And um, uh, my mom was with, 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 with my, my, uh, my mom's with, with her brother. And it was some stuff that my dad had creek caused and uh, they shot up our house. And my mom got shot in the, the chest and, and uh, she had to take her own bullet out of her, her chest while she, uh, because she was afraid to go outside. And then when my grandpa came home, he took her to the hospital. Um, and I was only I think maybe four years old at that time. And she just was like, I gotta leave. And she was in the hospital and she met some Jehovah's Witnesses uh, that were doing door to door. And they were, and she had met them and, and she had an appointment believe it or not, with the Jehovah's Witnesses that she missed because she was shot. And so they came to the hospital uh, because they were supposed to be you know, preaching with her that day. And uh, they were out uh, doing evangelist work because they were from Oregon. And they stayed in relationship with her when they went back to Oregon. And when she finally got out of the hospital, um, they like literally sent for her and said that if she wanted, they would, they would figure out a way to, to take care of her. And she literally didn't know a single person in Oregon, but to keep her safe because she thought that we were all gonna be killed at some point, uh, she literally took us and drove us to Oregon 
and we grew up here and it was it was her way of keeping us uh safe and to this day i mean she's still a Jehovah's witness she will swear by it. you know we were raised that way but uh my mom just was it took to that extent for her to to say this is i can't raise them here and that's what happened so i she is that is a brave thing to do for a black woman to go to Oregon and not know a single person except for the three white ladies that are like family to us right now uh, and have always been since <laughs> we were little uh, and to travel on their word alone. Wow. Like it's so uh, that's how we got here. So I'm in but Oregon. It shows how much brave she was and maybe that's you've been inspired by her bravery but also shows the level of desperation for her to seek safety for herself and for you and your brothers and, and sisters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she had eight, you are the oldest of eight, correct? Yes. Yes. So I'm actually the oldest of six. Six. Uh, my, my dad actually followed my mom out here and tried to get her to come back to Portland after she was out here for some months and, didn't work, so he tried it out here, and he couldn't do it, so he went back to Cleveland, and then he ended up passing. But uh, my my um, my mom's sister was sitting at a bus stop and was hit by a police car that was chasing somebody, and the police car lost control and, and plowed through the, the bus stop, and she had a one- and three-year-old. And so um, my mom sent for them and brought her kids up here, so then my mom raised eight of us. Another, we had two one-year-olds and two three-year-olds at the same time wow. with the other six of us. So I was the oldest. And so I, I had to be responsible very early because my mom was very dependent on me uh, because I took a lot of the responsibilities growing up. That's why I couldn't play basketball or do any of the other activities because I, I had a full-time job at home. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, yeah, I've always been a responsible party for my house. Which this, this leads me to the fact that you are uniquely qualified to, you know, lead very successful uh, entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial initiative like the One App because entrepreneurship is not that easy. You are like, you are built with the muscles of responsibility, of creativity, mm -hmm. of um, problem solving um, at a very early age. And so Tyrone, like how, so, so this is your background and that makes you really uniquely qualified to be the innovator and the inventor of um, the one app. So after you um, were injured and after you um, were homeless and we now know why you are homeless, you, because of your safety net that is so thin um, after that, what, what you said you participated at this, um, uh, PDX um, yeah, uh, challenge. competition, yeah, to get, so that is another thing that makes me, um, I want you to highlight here because like your access to entrepreneurship was not straightforward. Like you did, so tell us about, you know, the fact that you were broke at some point. Mm -hmm. So what you were always, you always had those big dreams despite your circumstances and responsibility that seems to be overwhelming. But that did not stop you from, you know, trying to figure out your dreams. So tell us more about yeah. that. So I, uh, I lived at the YWC homeless shelter, and I, uh, I began helping families that were in there. Uh, 
I couldn't walk myself or couldn't couldn't earn money. So I was kind of stuck there. But the problems that other people would come in with, I did know how to solve. Um, I had found out how to get on food stamps, for example. And I went to all these offices. I got denied. I learned how to get on them. Um, and then when people would come in needing food, I'd be like, I know where to go. I know who to connect you to. I know what forms to fill out. I did it wrong the first 20 times. I know how to make it happen, right? When people, I might not have been able to get a job, but I did know how to help other people get a job. I knew how to create an amazing resume and cover letter. I made probably a hundred of them while I was inside the shelter for people. Um, I was doing a lot to the point to where the newspaper, uh, the scanner came out because the director, Dale Davis, the director of the YWC at that time came out and, um, or she called the newspaper and the scanner did an article on me. And it said, went to school to be a hero uh, and ended up being a hero in other ways. And it was a picture of me uh, with a bunch of uh, the people in the shelter. Um, and uh, the, it, was, it printed in a newspaper. I remember taking it to my mom. Uh, and it was just, a, it was an amazing article, but it lit this fire in me because it was like, I am really good at helping people. And it was because at that point in my life, I could see those people for what they really were, even though they were in that position. And it was only because I was humbled to be in that position that I could look at another person and not have a single bit of um, judgment. Like my lens was clear that I could see through. And so I um, was able to connect on a level that I, I would have never been able to had I, um, uh, had I not gone through that experience myself. So. I would help a lot of people. And then I just had this idea, like everybody in here is, is trying to get housing and this is the problem and we can't figure out how to accomplish this. And so I had the idea for, you know, what if I was to build this app that would solve this problem by, you know, showing a renter every place they qualify for in the entire city at once, um, I, could, I could solve housing. And I like drafted it and I wrote it down and I like, I like, talked about it all the time but I never did nothing because there was to, to make it happen there was no platform like all I could do is just dream right I could just dream about it and I probably had notebooks full of time of how it would work and and what it would do and and I was like this is gonna be my business one day but it just was no platform and then there was literally like zero steps I could take to make it happen so all you can do is dream and then Prosper Portland which was Portland Development Commission came out with this, with this competition uh, about good ideas. And I like pitched it and I won. And uh, I mean, that platform, it took, it said, if you win, you'll get the opportunity to build your business basically. And I won and they provided me with the money, the office, the legal support, the mentorship, it was all packaged in this. And my idea is a reality. And now my company will do 5 million this year in sales. We will help thousands of people get into housing. It'll be worth 50 plus million dollars. Like all because a an opportunity was given to me. And I can't tell you what have happened, where I would be today if I had lost. I was making 11 bucks an hour as a housing advocate. I would be making, you know, my fire science degree is useless. I would probably be trying to take classes or, or do something. And, and eventually I would burn out and, 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 you know, settle. 
because the opportunity never came, right? So it's a lot of people out there in, in that position, but I just kind of got lucky. Like that's and and that's the problem. The problem is that you are a brilliant person, and there's many brilliant people out there with those dreams and that are uniquely qualified to solve problems because they live them themselves, uh, but they don't have access to opportunity. And Tyrone, you, um, when we were talking earlier, you were reflecting on, um, we were reflecting on your dad and how he said something I will never forget. He said he's the typical black person. Um, he has dreams, and, but he, and so tell us more about mm, what yeah. you think of your dad and like why he went to alcoholism and, and died of it. Yeah, he, he uh, my dad did die from kidney failure from drinking all the time and I used to uh, my mom would tell me about my dad when we were younger and he reminded me of me a hundred percent he wrote in notebooks to where they were full to the top on his business ideas and his plans I literally did the exact same thing like I had 50 100 150 page books that were no pages left because of my and I still do that today when I want to create new ideas so we were when she talks about him we were the same but why is it that when he was in his 40s, he literally just would wake up and drink all day, every day, go to the shipyard, work some hours so he can buy more alcohol and become useless. And it's because you can only dream for so long without any actual opportunity. Like, you know, preparation, success is supposed to be when preparation meets opportunity, right? You can prepare all day. But if your community never gets opportunity, at some point you just stop. And what does it look like when a person's dreams have faded? That's what it looks like. It looks like alcohol. It looks like um, depression. It looks like, you know, because um, you, you, what you want to be and what you are is so different that it just takes, you know, a toll on you over time. And I always imagine like that's why when I see this uh, George Floyd stuff, like I, it stresses me out because I'm like, you can look at me today and be like, you know, you're successful, you know, you you're nothing like this person, and I'm like, I'm exactly that person. The only difference was I had an opportunity, but if I hadn't, I can't tell you where I would be today. If I don't have a way to eat and I have children that I have to feed is how what are the limits on how I would go to make that happen would I you know like I can't tell you that that's that's I'm just fortunate enough to not be in that position but I would never look down on somebody in that position because the fact is my dad and me like he's my example we were I found his notebooks from back in the day like we were identical I just got a lucky break like that's the difference between us so and that's why I, we were talking in, in light of recent events, like about George Floyd and his uh, brutal death. He was literally tortured to death. And, um, and I wanted, like, so, you know, it could have been you. It could have been any other Black person. Um, so tell us, like, why do you think Black, uh, uh, George Floyd was um, a, mur a murder? Why he is... Um, we should, uh, why we, it's important for us to honor um, that incident. It will be, right. It will be difficult 
sorry, I keep getting phone calls. It would be difficult for people who are who didn't come from communities like mine to to see George Floyd as a hero. And I understand that. Like I understand that try to to try to explain that is difficult. But there were moments in my life when I was without anything. I had no opportunity. I had no way to, to get money. You know, I was on crutches. Uh and opportunities presented themselves. And um, I explained it once uh, in a panel like this, like I was like, uh, um, there is a, if, so there was this woman on a panel with me uh, maybe two years ago at, PC, at Portland State University. And um, she talked about how uh, she had gotten bitten, bit by this, this, this uh, gentleman in a, and, or a woman in a fight or, or something. And it was just disgusting to have been bit, right? And I, I thought about that and I had made it a, a comparison later on in that panel. And I don't, I'm hoping it makes sense because it, at that moment it did, but I'll try to explain it enough to get it to make sense now. But uh, because I had, she had, she had talked about how disgusting it was for, um, for people to make decisions like this and still be looked at in the community as um, as favorably to be for black communities to look at people that have lived this lifestyle favorably right and with passion with compassion with honor when they don't deserve any of it right and but because earlier she had talked about how disgusting it was to be to, to be bit and that's just a common thing so i had um i had told her i was like I was like, you think biting somebody is disgusting? And she was like, absolutely. And I was like, if I was to put my hand over your mouth and nose and start to choke you, and I was like, how long? And I, you, there was, you were restrained. There was no way that I was going to let get off of you. And you couldn't breathe. How long until biting was back on the table? Something that you hate, that you find disgusting. Two seconds? Three seconds, <laughs> exactly. Because biting is only disgusting because you're in a place that you don't need to. But the second you don't have that opportunity, anything is back on the table. Yeah. Like, and so that's just the reality of, of it. If you, food, water, and shelter are three things that humans need to survive. If you remove one of those, it's all back on the table. And that's just the reality of being human. So, uh, and George Floyd, you know, he, he had some of those items removed. And so, you know, and, and for me personally, at times in my life when I didn't have access to those things, the decisions that I made were poor. And I could, I could be in prison right now today for some of the decisions that I had made that I just was lucky enough to avoid it from. But, and it would have all been based on circumstance. And so when we see George Floyd, we think, damn, like I can see, I can really see him. Like I'm not looking at, you know, his persona. I, I can, I, I, it feels like you can, I can really see just from looking at him on the ground, I can be like, that could have been me at any point in my life if all of those things were removed from me. If I didn't have access to these fundamental things, whatever he did in his past, it's not that it's excusable or right, but I understand because I was there, right? And so when, when he dies, it's, it hits harder and you, 
you can proudly stand up and say his life was equal to my life and without any reservation like i don't feel one bad like you would you would say that his life yes in a heartbeat i would say because me and him are a a decision like a a one speck of luck apart you know and that is that's the reality of it so but it's really tough to to articulate that to somebody who is not um you know doesn't come from that community so it, I, I can understand why it can be challenging but in reality for if that made any sense you know it, at all well it makes total that, sense Tyrone. yeah it does and i i want to add that for me like um george floyd i think we've talked about this before um he is a he's a, a martyr because he is a victim of oppression he is mm. literally a, a symbolism of all that you've described to us before he's um even if he you know if he even even if he's not like an angel he was not like in in his life he probably made wrong choices here and there but that is irrelevant because what he did, his words, I can't breathe, awoke in our humanity to the oppression uh, that um, he symbolizes in him laying on the ground. And that is the, I think, what makes him in my eyes a hero um, because, and a martyr because he awoke in the humanity in all of us. People are protesting in honor of his last words. Um, and that's and and that image is is his image and that is george floyd and george floyd is a symbolism of all the black um, men out there uh, who are not with access to who don't have the privilege to access opportunity who don't have the privilege to uh, make better choices not because they're not working hard not because they are not um they choose nobody wakes up in the morning and decides, oh, I'm gonna be um, a drug addict. I'm gonna be alcoholic. That's not what your dad did. Mm -mm. You, your dad's first choice was the journal and his ideas, but he did not have the competition opportunity that you had. And let's go back to that competition. It's insane that you have to win a competition to make a brilliant solution available for you to actually start this entrepreneurship um, venture altogether it could it should be much more accessible so tell us like how you felt going to actually even going into that competition Tyrone like you were you you did not even think you might get it because you were threatened by all these companies so tell us about that oh yeah I uh, I still the competition was a big part of my life uh, especially when I was going through it like it was I when I tell you that that when I was, so we applied to the competition. I first, you know, they did the 50% cut, right? So it was like 300 applicants, 150 are gone first, first round. Uh, and it was just a written proposal, but they let everybody come into a mixer, right? Before the, you know, you, you submitted your application, they did a big mixer. And I remember showing up and I felt so outclassed. It was ridiculous. Like, I was like, these guys are all business people. You know, they had, they were dressed nice they had you know tablets and and you know with stylists that they were bringing up stuff they knew the lingo they had their matching t-shirts for their companies like they were they were you know they were there and i was i remember the polo shirt i had bought for that competition that i felt 
I, that was so professional and I, and I loved it. And, and I still felt I was underdressed when I was there. And um, I just felt like I didn't belong in there. Um, and it was a, it was, but I, I remember I showed up with my, my written proposal. Cause I, I told you, I always, you know, <laughs> wrote everything out. And I remember going and buying this dollar, you know, plastic cover, you know, those see-through covers that you can put on the top and the bottom that makes your documents look professional <laughs> and with the little plastic, you know, uh, you know, thing to bind it together on this, on the back. And I walked in, I didn't want it to bend. Like I was like, and I, it was so perfect. And all I, that was everything. And I had every, all of my, my dreams, all of my future hopes, it was all in this document. Like it was, this was it. And when I got the email that said that, uh, congratulations, you made it to the next round. I can't tell you what that did for me. Like I was like, I didn't get cut. And then the next round from 150 to 20 people, top 20. And when I got an email saying I made it to the top round, my entire life evolved around that competition. Like other people were that were there were like, oh, I'm in that, I may or may not win. But it had like 10% impact on their life. Like they didn't care so much. It would have been nice, but no big deal, right? And that's how I am today on other competitions. Like I'll be like, I'd be like, you know, if I win or lose, I don't really care. Fortunately, I don't usually lose, but I, it's not a big impact to me. Like, it'd be just nice. That's not how it was at the end. At that day, like, my livelihood was dependent on this. I would literally wake up, daydream, breathe, eat, everything about this competition. And when I went in for the, the final round and I had to, like, do a, a verbal presentation of why I should be picked for the top 20, it was um, – the most nerve-wracking thing. I remember sweating through my suit like it was, <laughs> it was horrible. And and I I pitched and I went home and I had the most upset stomach and I was just like, I could have did better. I could have did better. I could have did better. And uh, I got the the email saying congratulations, you're the winner of this year's Startup PDX Challenge. And that was just, I mean, I you can't explain the impact that that has. Uh, especially when you are the only person who actually believes it's possible and you barely believe it. Like, like, like 10% of you says I'm gonna win this. And the rest of the 90% of you is actually like preparing yourself to be okay for losing it because you pretty much know this was going to happen. You're just waiting for that email. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, I can only explain to you my entire trajectory of life changed based on that email. Right. And so, yeah, it's a big impact, and I and I, I wish that uh, it wasn't like you said. I wish it wasn't based on some competition. I wish that any person that that black, white, whatever that had an idea had the opportunity to try, right? Uh, that an opportunity is is a mixture of things. It's capital, yes, right? And and African Americans, and especially in Oregon, have virtually no access. It is also knowledge and mentorship right? It's uh, a whole slew of things go into what makes opportunity. And um, there's just, uh, there's some programs now that are doing really, I mean, Prosser Portland has taken my little competition and, and they have created, I mean, under, under Kimberly's watch, she's created like a, an entire ecosystem that Black communities can, can use to grow from and, and growing more and more. And people have made it like 
their business to improve the opportunity from our community. And I'm telling you, it will pay off. Like one, there are so many diamonds inside, but they are just covered with, with rock right now. And if you give them that opportunity, one thing that I will tell you that bothers me is that people will come to me and, and be like, Tyrone, you are special. You are a one-off. You know what I mean? Like you are such an uh, uh, anomaly to, to the norm. And at the beginning, I used to take that as prideful, like I'm so different. But then I knew reality was that's not the case. Like in reality, there's so many more, but the only, and, and by me, by me acknowledging that I was different is the same thing as me saying that it's like cosigning on the fact that, yep, I'm unique, one off, like, there is no value to go into this black community and dig for more because I was really just a one-off and that's bullshit. Right. So in reality, when people say that now, I'm like, no, I'm not, not special, not nothing. So many ideas, so many dreams, so many unique perspectives because of where they come from. And if you, if you, if you look at me as unique, you're missing out. If you look at me as like, wow, I didn't know that that was actually in there. I didn't know that ideas like this existed in that community. I need to go in there and dig some more out. That is how you should be looking at things. And, and I learned, by the way, I speak and respond to when people say stuff to me that I'm actually either enforcing that behavior and those beliefs or I'm like putting them to bed. And I've learned how to, to change the way I respond to things because I was subconsciously co-signing this idea that there was no more value in there. And um, I got away from that, so well, sorry. No, no, I think what you said is totally brilliant, Tyrone, but now I want people to know how brilliant your idea is because, you know, you talk about it in the TED Talk. For everyone who, um, you know, want to watch the entire story of Tyrone, he has a TED Talk, so we didn't want to re replicate it. But mm -hmm. um, Tyrone, I want you to share with us the idea that made you ah. disrupt the, yeah. the homelessness issue. What was your idea that won the competition? Right. So, like I said, I, I worked at the Y. I was helping people uh, find housing and help. And when I the first day in the shelter, so I got to this homeless shelter, and the first day I was given an award letter. I met with the director, and they hooked me up, and it was the happiest day ever because they said we're going to pay your rent for 12 months, any place you find. And I was just like, and it's, I've ne I'd never been given rental assistance. I didn't even know somebody could, would pay my rent for a year. And I was beyond happy. And then I went and looked online and looked at every apartment and I knew my maximum dollar amount. And so I just kind of like, I had like my top three properties and then I went and applied and got denied and got denied and got denied. And it was the most frustrating thing because I borrowed application fee after application fee and I did everything I could to try to get into a place. And uh, my letter was going to expire, uh, which because after 90 days, if I don't find a place, they take that money and reallocate it to another family. And I thought that my situation was just horrible. And then I realized later, uh, a little bit later after I was lucky and privileged enough to find a place, uh, a lady actually rented to me. Um, but 
before that, I it wasn't just me. Like our at the YWCA, we had a fifty percent failure rate on all of the vouchers we gave out. So half of the people that had ninety days to find a place would never find a place, and we had to take the money back, and they got put back in their cars to live. You know how hard it is to to have that opportunity in your hand and never let anyone approve you, and so now you have to go back to being homeless. And that was that, and, and we always blamed on the fact that the Y didn't have much money. We were like, we don't have enough staff to support people. We just need more staff, more, more support. Uh, but in reality, once you give somebody an award letter, you can't magically find a house for them. It's on them to go out and all these management companies, you know, you got to find a place you qualify for. And, uh, and it wasn't about money because I ended up, um, doing work with the uh, housing authority and a bunch of other programs and housing authority had a 40% failure rate, you know, and, and other programs were right up in line with that. So it had nothing to do with um, how big your program was. Why might've been small, but I mean, HUD has a limitless budget and they still have the same deep, you know, failure rate for people. So I had an idea. I was like, I think I can solve it and I can make the most vulnerable person that has that's trying to find a place. This is a person with no money for application fees, no, uh, you know, no way to get around, no nothing, just because I, I, I could see all of the issues that people were having trying to find a place. And so I knew what I had to solve for, right? And so, because I'm like, this person had this problem, this person had this problem. And I, I always had to solve them in real time. So I just said, if I had a platform that- uh, You're popular, Kyron. <laughs> yes. I was like, if I had a platform that uh, would pull the background check of a renter and I can and I would go out and collect the screening criteria of every single management company in Oregon and put them on this one platform and pull a renter's background check, I would be able to tell a renter every single vacancy in the city they qualified for instantly. And when I pitched my pitch to uh, PDC, Port Development Commission, Prosper Portland now. I, um, I, that's what I said. I said, I, I work at the Y. And um, if you give me the opportunity, I will literally go out personally and, and go knock on every single property management company's door until they show me or give me their screening criteria. And then I will build this website that allows the renter to pull their background check and shows them exactly where they qualify. I said, right now we have 46 families, I believe it was, I have to rewatch my TED talk uh, uh, at this time. Uh, and half of them will be back in the car at the end of the month. Not because of anything, except for the process to find qualified housing is so hard. And I can reduce it to a day. I can reduce it to an hour for everybody. And uh, uh, I won and we did it and we built it. And now it's like these little red pins on the map and green pins that you popped up earlier. And it's, we literally allow a renter to pull their background check and it will, their unique background check will get filtered against all of those random screening criteria from different management companies. Uh, one app in Oregon is, is, we have 309 of the 389 companies. So we almost have the entire rental market. And pulling your background check on one app is, is literally the equivalent of of spending $200,000 in application fees and knocking on doors and applying for 11 years. Done in a minute from your phone. 
and we've matched thousands of people to housing uh, since the app had to go down in March. Uh, so frustrating, uh, but because the, the Oregon passed some laws that made uh, the management companies have to switch up their screening criteria. And as a result, uh, one app had to um, go down until we could collect the new criteria because we could no longer accurately tell people where they live and or where they qualified. And we are, the day it went down, our phones went ballistic. We had programs that I never even heard of that were like, they use our, our website for their training classes. They, every person, we had re-entry programs that I literally met the directors for the first time because I had no idea that they were, every time somebody came out of, from prison, they used our app to figure out where all the felony friendly properties were that would approve people based on their criminal history. I mean, it was being used by so many people. And when you, when you see traffic and you're like, oh, we had 1,250 background checks pulled this month. That's great. I was so disconnected from where those 1,250 background checks came from. And once it went down, I like, we literally had to put uh, our phone number. We used to answer it. Now it is just an automated thing that just says, due to this, we are working around the clock, trying to get it back up and going. Uh, but I, it, it, was, it hurt, but it also showed how, how intricate knowing before you go, that's our tagline, know before you go, how powerful it is to be able to, to have that peace of mind to say, all right, where do I qualify to live? And then the site of uh, one website is just like, out of 4,000 vacancies, you qualify for 62. And here they are. And yeah. that's where I go live. Like no BS. I can just go here and live, right? And it's a big, uh, it was a, probably, it's a, it's a gigantic accomplishment that I'm very proud of. So for people who are not familiar with the, with the American housing, because we are an international community, uh, can you, Tyrone, kind of explain to, to us the idea in terms of like what the logarithm looked like? Because you focused on two variables. What's the equation? You have a brilliant equation that would summarize it for everyone who doesn't, who's not familiar with this. I love, it's brilliant. I think your, the simplicity of it, but the, the value you put on those variables is so important. So tell us about your brilliant idea right. in, that, in mathematical terms. Yeah. Right, right. I, so I, I actually was going to do it in my TED talk, but then I was, I was advised against it because it would, it would be too complex, but I would, uh, so math was always my thing, always, like always. Um, and uh, I had wrote the algorithm that for the for one app, and it ended up um, I ended up speaking for the housing bureaus for the United States in Cleveland, Ohio, and they named it. Uh, they called it Pool's Theory of Housing Accessibility, and so from that point forward, I kept that as the name. And uh, it was just the name of the class that I was speaking in that they just titled it that, and so. Um, but the, it, if I was to write on a piece of paper, it would look complex, but when you say it, it's, and you try to explain it, it's not so hard, but, um, the way, the way one app works is basically it, it is equation broken into two parts. And the first part says, um, the amount of effort that it takes for a person to find a home, right? And effort is measured by time and money. So the amount of time and money it takes for a person to find a home is dependent on what percentage of the market they qualify for, right? So if I qualify, when I got out of the shelter, I probably qualified for one out of a 
for for one out of a thousand vacancies, right? Or, or probably one percent, which is you know like one out of a thousand. So you that's you, there's an actual number associated with like you know a percentage with that. So um, so once you know that you qualify for one percent of the market, right? Which like I said, ten out of a thousand units that will tell me the amount of effort it would take just by using a standard probability equation, right? So that means that I'm going to have to apply to a hundred properties before I get one favorable outcome, before one approval, just from basic math, right? And so, so now when you understand the amount of effort it's gonna take based on this person's background check, now the next part of the equation is determining, well, how much effort do they have or how much money and time does this person have? If the amount of money and time required based on what percentage of the market they qualify for is greater than what they have, their housing search is going to end in failure. If my background says, on average, you only qualify, it's going to, you have to do 25 applications before you get approved. And the amount of money I have is a hundred bucks, which gets me two applications. Probability of me getting housing is very, very slim. And so it was just basic math. So what I had to accomplish in my equation was I had to figure out how to reduce the amount of effort to zero. Because if the effort is zero, then 100% of people have more than zero effort, right? And so I had to build an equation that did that. So that's why one app for free shows every single person where they qualify. So now with your phone and no money, you will be able to see every vacancy in Portland and Oregon that you qualify to get the keys from today. So the amount of effort that's going to take you to find that needle in a haystack that you qualify for 20 out of 4,000 that you would have never found that on your own in that screen that you guys had put up before, I was given that example. That was an actual person's background check that showed all those red pins were places they didn't qualify for. And it was about 20 or so green pins on that map that in that picture you seen were so small you couldn't even notice them like you wouldn't even have been able to identify these these green pins but they were so few and i'm like what if this was your reality you had to guess and go and you had a hundred bucks what's the odds of you hitting one of those green pins very slim right and almost, so, zero. almost zero right and so that's why um but looking with one app i can just see them yeah i like, see two you can just see them, right? And it also shows how um, within inner city Portland and the pricing and blah, blah, and then outskirts, you qualify for more properties because the, um, but if you were trying to live right in the city of Portland, it would have been really tough because that's all red, right? So um, it's so, a powerful so I want, yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you because I think the reason you have this genius idea, we talked before, um, it's, it's the source of your compassion to solving the problem because you are a true problem solver because you care. Like, so because you care, you prepare more, like, uh, I think. And so you shared with me, like, that you, one of the women in the shelter uh, that you, one of the women in the shelter that you've helped was a mom who had to drop her schools, uh, her kids to school. And so she had limited time. And that's how you got the idea of time um, as an important part of the equation. So mm -hmm. can, you share, can you share that story with us for people who don't necessarily understand the math 
to understand why why what you're what why this is such an important equation in reality for people like how can you humanize the equation you are probably muted tyrone I can't hear Tyrone. Okay, so Tyrone was disconnected. So um, let's wait for a second. Let's try to see if he will come back. Um, So meanwhile, I think um, as we're waiting on Tyrone to come back, I can uh, look at the chat box and see your um, your thoughts and your reflections. Okay, so we have great, we have almost, um, we had on the call almost like uh, 30 attendees the entire time probably um, from what I recall. Um, and now I have questions from Branka. Thank you for attending. And I hope that Tyrone is here. Anna, can you make Tyrone a panelist? Sorry for the technical uh, issues. This is the, the, the internet world. Yes. Glad you're back, Tyrone. Everything okay? Yes, yes. I was uh, I when I got on the call, I had already. I'm I'm back. I'm back. I knew I was gonna lose connection. That's why I tried to like get up and move, but um, I wasn't able to make it. No. And it's gonna be tough to finish the call from here on out. So. Okay, so we can wrap it up. I have actually two questions left. So for, from the audience, we had a question from Brinka. Um, so she says, thank you so much for sharing your story. I have high respect and admiration for your work and experience. You are inspiration. So her question, it seems to me there is another deep cause of housing crisis, and that is unfair and inequitable health system to get injured or sick and get in debt or homeless because of that uh, should be unacceptable. Health is a basic human right. I wonder what is your opinion and do you think by solving unfair health system, we can also help many people who end up homeless uh, because of medical bills? Thank you. So that's your first question from the audience. Yes, yeah, so I um, I am very glad that you mentioned that. That is so because of this police brutality, it seems like people are making that like the, the underlying issue for uh, Black America to not have equitable rights because of over policing and uh in reality in my opinion it it obviously is something that needs to be changed and evolved but it is not our biggest issue and it, it can't overpower the other issues which just like you mentioned yep uh police brutality and, and being over policed is is not 
fair, but also we have uh, other injustices that's got to be resolved, like like housing, right, and like access to capital and money and healthcare uh, and education and all of these subpar, you know, things that need to be resolved uh, before and made equitable before our communities can be raised up too. So. Uh, absolutely health is one of them and, and it is one that ne needs to be reformed uh, under Obama under Obama's administration it was getting there but now it's made huge strides back in the wrong direction uh, to where we're back on our own again and trying to figure out how to I did have health care for like two years so <laughs> those are good times but now back to, to nothing again so uh, uh, yeah it is a, a our old president he had realized that and he had uh patched that hole and was was trying to improve it but that, that patch is gone so but yeah that is a, a an absolute issue that goes on and because we don't usually have uh the equitable health care that will support us it just sits on our credit and, and prevents us from ever having upper mobility for a long time Thank you for, for this thought, uh, Ty Tyrone. So I know you're, you need to wrap it up quick. So the last question I have from the audience is, what does Tyrone think about universal basic income? Could it stable us by meeting the basic needs for all? So that builds on Branka's question. Uh, what, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts or no thoughts on uh, universal basic income? So uh, I have very little thoughts on universal basic income. But um, I understand the pros, right? Uh, the pros are everybody has enough, right? Like everybody's minimums are met to sustain life and people aren't on the streets dying because while other people have billions of billions of dollars, which seems broken. Um, I do, there, there's downsides to universal income. And uh, one of them, so uh, welfare, for example, lots of African-American families uh, have to make so little that they are on this welfare. But the way it works is that if I make more money, then I lose it. So it really makes it to where it's like, uh, it disincentivizes black community from earning because the more you earn, the more they take away from the benefits. And so it, it devalues effort it devalues work because if i make two thousand dollars this month i lose all my benefits and my benefits equal two thousand dollars so i'm literally working to replace a money that i was getting already and um so you would have to i i love the idea of um of of everybody having enough like that is like an amazing world but if it's done wrong it will disincentivize the workforce because people right now their dreams and their their need is what keeps the world turning and if you remove that because your minimums are you know enough then um i don't understand i don't no one has explained to me why somebody's going to go work a 40-hour week and work overtime and do all of this if um if their earnings are capped and they're going to make enough if they don't so that is the part where um, I feel like uh, either I just need to be better, ed better educated on it or, but the concept is, is, is good in the sense, like I said, there won't be people who have a zillion dollars but other people have nothing. Um, 
but uh, I feel like there's some common ground we got we should be able to get to. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing this. Um, and so Tyrun, I, I know probably, do you have another uh, few minutes or do you have to go now? Cause I can't just wrap this up. I do have to go, I'm okay. so sorry. No worries, no worries. Uh, well, I one last thought from you that I want you to share because you shared this brilliant mm -hmm. idea about the police reform and what do you think would be a good solution for um, you know the current bleed of uh, people protesting for more justice. So, what's your thoughts on that before I can wrap right. up with my audience? Okay, no problem. So, my thoughts on um, my 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 idea for police reform because everybody keeps saying take the money from them and do stuff like that. In reality, uh, it's the same concept that I have for everything when it comes to uh, creating opportunity for black Americans. And it is giving us a seat at the table. I'm tired of having to beg for somebody to fight for me on my behalf, right? Like uh, it is a very difficult uh, place to be in all the time. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the commissioners was fighting for uh, minorities to have access um, in uh, the um, in, in neighborhoods. So it was neighborhood associations that were imposing rules that made it difficult for minorities to live. And so in return, even though we lived in those neighborhoods, the way we lived, uh, they, they would enforce things like, I mean, I had a friend who had to go drive to Peninsula Park to work on his car because it was against the rules of the neighborhood to repair your car in your own parking lot, in your own driveway, you know, to your house. They thought it looked tacky, right? There was ways that um, you couldn't color on the sidewalk in the streets with sidewalk chalk when the kids did, they would get a, a notice on their door because that's not how they wanted the neighborhood to look, right? And so the neighborhood, so then you had people complaining, 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 because those fines you actually had to pay. And so instead of, so what they did was they collected a, a bunch of people's feedback and then they go and then they pitch it or they, they you know, say, hey, we're gonna pass this law and then they pass some changes. And then they come back to the black community and they look at you and they say, we did this for you. Like, look at, look at what we passed. Now you don't have to deal with this anymore. You know, aren't you grateful for you know, this opportunity? And the laws are always, they're better, but they're not exactly what you needed. And it's because they're not from your community and they're not able to articulate exactly what you needed in those laws. But they did the best that they could by grouping a bunch of people. And, and that's what you get, right? And that doesn't solve the problem because when something else happens, guess what? I got to come back to you and ask you for more help. And so the solution in, in, is this, in white America, I love them, but they have this hero syndrome where they feel like to help black people, you have to save black people. That's a mistake, and it actually is a, it's a, it's counterproductive. What you want to do is you need to bring us to the table. If if you want to change neighborhood associations, for example, you know what you do, you say, from now on, the board that makes up neighborhood associations need to reflect the different racial you know uh, groups that are in that community. So guess what? If you add two black people to the board of seven, it changes. If you add an Asian person to the board, but as long as it's seven old white men that you know are construction and they built it and they have their idea in their mind of what that neighborhood is supposed to look like, we will always have to go back to somebody else. So giving us a seat at the table is a permanent solution. 
you know, helping us and trying to save us is it does a little, but it does more for the person who, 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 who wrote the law and got, you know, gets praised for it than it does for the community sometimes. So, uh, and for my example, for the police department, I was like, make it to if the president said, you know, from in the next three years, all police forces in major metro black or major metropolitan cities needs to be considered twenty five percent black people. So now they're all hiring black officers, which, like I said, like firemen, they they don't really exist very often. Uh, you can't tell me that a tw a, a police force being twenty five percent black is going to have the same you know decision making <laughs> if than in this all white police force that we have now. It'd be completely different. And we don't need you to take the money and do that. We just need you to put us to the table. And if you do that to everything, if you create opportunity for us to get involved in, and have a voice in everything, instead of trying to solve the problems, we would go a lot faster in change that the world needs to see. So that would be my opinion on how things should just be going forward. Thank you so much, Tyrone. I know you have to rush your, your job as a dad. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm working at the office. I totally understand. But I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I know everybody here was inspired by your words and your ideas. And uh, hopefully we'll have you some other time on the show, maybe for another time, uh, maybe for less time next time. Uh, but it was amazing to have you here and listening to your story. That is the story of many people in America um, who are suffering from racial uh, inequity. And, um, and thank you for shedding light on those issues and also sharing with us your brilliant ideas on entrepreneurship and um, discussing very important topics. So thank you, Tyron. I'll let you go, but yes, I will- thank you for inviting me to your show. Absolutely, it's my honor, it's my pleasure. Um, so I want to uh, wrap it up by call to action to Rotarians um, on our show. So Anna, if you want to pull up the, um, the slide on our call to action, which builds on actually Tyrone um, idea of having more people on the table from the black community, I feel that it's important for Rotarians to dedicate some funds in their, in their Rotary clubs to support, um, intentionally support black entrepreneurs. So we create more opportunities for, um, for people who don't have access to opportunity and people of color and indigenous people. Um, mm -hmm. Also create some of your funds that and committee work to support scholarships and students um, um, from communities of color and black people. Um, and also support work intentionally and closely with nonprofits and organizations that is advocating for uh, racial uh, justice and racial equity, diversity and inclusion. Let's be intentional about it and work together and in collaboration with our black community, with the black community and people of color in America and in other places. Uh, also, I would urge you all and urge myself uh, to continue to educate ourselves about the history of, uh, of racism and the history of discrimination and the, the call and the plea of indigenous people and people of color in, in, in all the various communities around the world. It is so important that we continue to educate ourselves because um, as we've said before, uh, injustices thrive in ambiguity and we should fight it with knowledge. 
Um, and I'd like you to share this episode with your friends and family and Rotary Network and your um, and everyone on your uh, Facebook and social media because we want um, Tyrone Voice to be heard by as many people as possible and make his time on the show worthwhile, especially that we took him away from his uh, babies. Um, and uh, for uh, to support, um, uh, support uh, also all the uh, volunteers and uh, partner organizations in, in, um, in your community um, and volunteer your time also to understand their mission, to work with them, see how you can help them even do their work in a more impactful way. Um, and last but not least, if you are interested in solving homelessness in your community, uh, the One App um, um, company led by Tyrone, the awesome Tyrone Pool, um, is there to help. So, Tyrone, before you leave, where where do you operate? What states you're in or cities right now for the Rotarians watching? We are um, Oregon, uh, Georgia, and we will be opening up Florida and Minneapolis this year. Okay, so you've heard it. Um, and next, um, so that's all about all the call to actions. Uh, you've heard them. So now I'd like to just, uh, yeah, we've, okay, thank you. So thank you so much, Sarah. I know you need to leave. Thank I do, you. sorry. Okay, all I'll right. talk to you later. Okay, bye. Please, bye. bye. Um, so thank you all for joining us for part one of the hour Together for Peace session finale. This is really part um, of the finale. And so please make sure to take the post-webinar survey and let us know your actions for peace, justice, and racial inclusion. Um, please join us next week for part two of our season finale um, next week with our beloved guest, Carolyn Jones. Uh, Carolyn is a successful human rights attorney decorated Rotarian, as well as the first woman trustee for the Rotary Foundation. Her accomplishments as a humanitarian and attorney have placed her in the Alaska Women's Hall of Fame. Those of you who joined us this week, make sure to register for Kaylin's episode before Monday, and you will receive a coupon to join our season two premiere for free. I look forward to hosting you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, Keep your smile big and your heart open. Have a wonderful weekend and wage peace. Thank you so much, everybody.